Hello and welcome to the EGP Learning Pod Blast with Andy and Gandhi. Hi, I'm Andy Foster, a doctor in uh, Nottingham, GP partner of seven years, um, one of the directors of NCGPA, which is a, a federation operating in Nottingham, and on sec of RCGP uh, Vale of Trent faculty. Uh, so I suppose that those are my declarations of interest for today. Uh, Gandhi, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Hazen Gandhi. I'm a GP partner and trainer in Nottingham as well. Um, I'm the owner of EGP Learning, um, as well as an RCGP faculty member like Andy. And I'm the former chair of the Vale of Trent faculty. Um, I'm also GP survival treasurer, as well as the owner of something called System One Facebook user group, which some of you may be aware of. Um, I'm an avid gamer and geek as well, on top of all the other billion hats I tend to wear. Wow, long list. I'm in uh, esteemed company. Uh, who are you, Gandhi? You need to lengthen my list, I think. Well, I'm not sure about that. Sometimes having less hats is a better thing, particularly with kids. Um, so, yeah, we've created this um, pod blast the, the, to try and talk about some of the things that interest us. Um, we're both um, Nottingham-based GPs that have a, a fairly good passion for technology and the use of that, particularly in primary care. So we wanted to try and share that um, love that we have and also see if it can be useful to other people out there. Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose I, I, I'm, I would add to my intro that I, my interests are I'm interested in uh, general practice working at scale hence the interest in the in the federation um, and how technology can help uh, patients in general practice deliver better care. Cool. So one of the ways that we wanted to structure this podcast, um, so just to give you a heads up on what's coming up, um, we thought it'd be useful covering some of the new kind of technology advances, particularly things like apps and that kind of stuff that are relevant um, to healthcare and particularly primary care. Um, and then after that, we we're going to cover some of the new uh, kind of news updates and stuff um, again around that similar topic. And then after that, we hope to interview a regular um, person to get their perspective in terms of what they experience with primary care and technology and all that kind of stuff. And for our first interview, we'll be talking to Andy himself. Yeah, for me, very, very convenient since I'm, I'm here already. Uh, but yeah, we, we hope to have some, uh, some good guests lined up to, for you in the, uh, in the weeks to come and months. Cool. So, um, talking about apps, um, so we had a look at what's out and about at the moment, and um, one of the best places to actually look for that kind of information is the nice updates. Um, particularly, yeah. we've come across a couple that were quite useful and I think worth sharing. Yeah, so, so NICE have been um, providing um, app reviews and evaluations for, for some time, and uh, most recently in November, they published some, uh, some guidance and reviews of uh, two new apps. So we thought we'd have a look at those today. Uh, one of them is uh, Sleepio, um, and the other is an app for um, helping uh, communication between uh, prospective mothers with gestational diabetes and the teams looking after them. Uh, so I think we'll talk about Sleepio first, shall we, Gandhi? Yeah, so um, Sleepio is originally a website, um, and as with most websites, they've gone and created an app to kind of use it. Um, it's designed as um, something to help people with poor sleep, which, you know, I think is applicable to most people in healthcare nowadays, in that, let alone the patients. Yeah, very true. Um, so uh, the NICE guidance uh, describes Sleepio as, uh, as, as a product designed for adults with poor sleep to help improve their sleep through cognitive, cognitive behavioural therapy approach. Um, so this is an example of uh, some digital uh, CBT delivered by an app-based system. Yeah, um, so it works by the looks of it quite well. Um, it's got quite a good um, feel and very simple to use. Um, it, very similar to, I guess, other kind of uh, mindful-based apps. So we talked about Headspace earlier as being um, an alternative kind of visual um, version of this app. 
Um, and I think one of the other powerful things about this is, is the website that's, and then the knowledge that's behind it in terms of uh, accessing CBT mm. for insomnia, which is actually probably one of the most useful things in terms of helping people with poor sleep. Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to say, Gandhi, I know that you've um, you've had a you've had an opportunity to use the web-based version of, mm. of this application. Um, I was just wondering, wondering how you found it. Yeah, so. Um, I had a baby girl a few months back, and as most expectant parents, um, yeah, suffering with poor sleep at the time. So I just wanted to see, is there actually some sensible advice about how I can get some better sleeping habits as a result of dealing with waking up every couple of hours with the missus to, to look after our daughter and stuff. And so I had a look at Sleepio. Um, their website has a, a free function in terms of you just log on with an email address, and it asks you some simple questions to quantify and qualify the type of sleep problems you're having. As a result of that, it then gives you personalized and helpful tips and things. Um, and then there's the option, obviously, to go for the more fuller package, which is the, the CBT for insomnia side of it afterwards. Admittedly, that I haven't tried personally because other things took over. Um, but it does look very um, attractive and actually access to that particular yeah. resource, I think, would be really useful. Gandhi, can can you remember any of the specific personalised advice that it gave you about your sleep? So there's the standard kind of sleep hygiene stuff that I think we talk about with a lot with the patients and things. So, you know, making sure that you're, you're ready to go to sleep when you want to go to sleep, trying to obviously reduce screen time, that kind of stuff. Um, particularly with a little one, I guess the key thing it said was about trying to um, alternate, um, you know, who's getting up and things. So simple advice. Mm. But sometimes actually it's easy to forget. Um, trying to make sure that you know you're not staying upright so when you are going back to sleep you just literally get back in bed lie down you know that kind of thing and you know fair enough my individual example probably isn't the easiest one because it's probably the more you sleep is a problem because of external factors shall we say mm. But, you know, some of the theory behind it, some of this, you know, the advice behind it was very sound, I found, and, and particularly the way it assessed how um, your sleep is affected, I think was really um, useful. Yeah, because I'm just reading the technology review and it says that it links to um, a Fitbit, for example, or other uh, sorts of um, activity tracking devices yeah. that you might wear at night. Um, is that how you used it? Um, so I didn't at the time because that's I think that's only with the app that, that that works more effectively. However, at the same time, I was tracking my sleep with my own little Fitbit that I've got. And, you know, it pretty much racked up in terms of, you know, I was waking up several times a day that matched with the advice. And, mm. and what it showed me was that I wasn't really getting to those deeper layers of REM sleep. And actually, what I noticed afterwards when I tried to make a few of those simple changes, you know, and also, you know, not waking up as often because, you know, we were sharing the workload and, and that kind of thing. It meant that I was getting more periods of better quality sleep. It was better. By no means it was, you know, nine hours yeah. solid. I was never okay. going to expect that, to be fair. Um, but, you know, well, I, I felt a bit better and I was able to still function. Okay, good. Interesting. So just looking at what they're actually offering, it, it looks like the uh, intervention, they offer the monitoring with and, and feedback, some biofeedback about your sleep, linking mm -hmm. to a Fitbit or other suitable devices are available. Um, and then the intervention seems to be uh, six weekly interactive 20-minute electronic CBT sessions so that's interesting and I guess we should talk about the, the costs yeah Gandhi. so um, Sleepio doesn't come without a cost um, so the, the evaluation part is free um, simply all you have to do is give them their, your email address really um, but if you wanted to go for the more you know, the actual CBT for insomnia yeah there's a cost it's £200 per year um, which may sound like a little bit of a mouthful to, to, to swallow really but I guess one of the things to remember if you compare that to other interventions that are used for helping patients with sleep, so 
compared to most medications, they can be of similar cost. Um, bearing in mind that obviously medications come with a big downside of you know dependency, um, side effects, mm-hmm. and you know interactions and stuff. Yeah, and they're, they're things that I'm reluctant to do as a GP. Yeah, um, I think I. I would be much less reluctant to to recommend uh, an app, so uh, so that's a plus point. Mm-hmm. Um, just comparing with the cost of CBT, so two hundred pounds per year for the app intervention, and uh, again referring to the nice document, six fifty five minute CBT sessions, which they consider would be the standard therapy, would cost about six hundred pounds. So significantly cheaper than that. Yeah. So. Uh, and I guess that's also based on the accessibility, because actually the ch- challenge for most places is having access to CBT for insomnia. Because, uh, so for example, if you take our Nottingham area, mm. uh, there isn't a, a contained CBT for insomnia clinic locally that is potentially packaged as part of the IAP services mm. that a lot of places may have. But as an independent um, resource, it's not really it's something true. that's everywhere. It doesn't. It doesn't really exist uh, in Nottingham CBT for uh, for insomnia. Very good point. And I suppose even where it does exist, patients are going to have to wait to use it, whereas they can um, hop straight in with an app, which is which is good. Yeah. So, was there what was the evidence behind the effectiveness of this Gandhi? Um. So I think when we looked at it, it showed that um those patients that they put on the waiting list, so basically no intervention whatsoever, far superior in terms of effect and, and you know outcomes. Uh, it showed that a lot of people uh, that had tried it were having better quality sleep. There isn't unfortunately many stuff that I mean, many evidence trials or anything like that compare it against directly CBT for insomnia um, clinics and that kind of thing. So that's obviously something worth looking at and mm. seeing if that does change. But I guess the, the key thing for me with this is, is the accessibility. It is an alternative um, that can be used. And I guess with that comes the, the power and the resource that comes with it. Yeah, and it's also quite patient empowering, I think. Um, you know, it's quite patient directed, it's yeah. using their own technology their own phones they're making they're taking the initiative to uh, to download the app and sign up so i think you get a lot of patient buying with it i imagine which contributes to uh, the chances of success uh, just noticing that um that the benefits were maintained at three month follow-up as well um in the study which is good. yeah which is definitely better than most medication options as well <laughs> very true very yeah. true yeah so uh yeah so very interesting um, app, something that we could all download and, and try, um, mm-hmm. particularly the evaluation period without without signing up to pay money if sleep's not a particular problem mm-hmm. for you at the moment, and something that can be recommended uh, safely to patients uh, as it's recommended by NICE. So yeah, fantastic. Mm-hmm. So Gandhi, you've used it partially. Is this something yeah. that you would personally recommend? So I do already. Um, I, th- I think that the website portion of it, I, I definitely recommend to my patients. Um, working in St Anne's, it's a deprived area. Admittedly, most patients do not have £200 to jump up. So, um, you know, admittedly, I say to them, look, whether you go for that, completely your choice. But at the very least, the assessment portion, I'm a big fan of. I, th- I think it is more targeted sleep hygiene advice for those patients with chronic insomnia issues. So I think that's better than, you know, just a generic, you know, go to bed early, watch your smartphone kind of thing. And, you know, it's, it's just that slightly more specific information. Yeah. Whether they go for the more, um, you know, expensive option of paying for the service, I think it, it's got good groundings. I think access to CBT influence on this is a key issue for particularly healthcare delivery. And I guess, you know, like I said, if you, if you rack this compared to other alternatives, it, it is actually cheaper. There is um, uh, the option of commissioners, I guess, to look at this as a provision mechanism for patients and stuff. And if you compare it, uh, you know, £200 is the full price. Um, I know that on the NICE update, it does talk about the fact that, you know, 
in some areas have actually commissioned this for patients at a much cheaper rate overall because they're bulk buying, obviously. Um, so, you know, there may be some headway in terms of, you know, CCGs looking at this as a potential option for uh, improving access to healthcare. Yeah, excellent point. Okay, so that was one of the apps that we looked at um, yeah. this this week. So, what was the other app, Gandhi? So, the other app that we looked at um, was um, it's called GDM Healthcare. Um, so, GDM stands for Gestational Diabetes. Um, and it's a, an app that basically looks at monitoring and um, the patient feedback in terms of uh, gestational diabetes itself. Um, so, yeah, Andy, you've had a look at this in a bit more detail. So, do you want to talk us through it? Yeah, so, uh, so it's described as an, an application designed for people with gestational diabetes to allow for remote monitoring of blood glucose levels and communication with healthcare professionals. So essentially this is a, a mobile phone app um, that communicates with, blood glu- with wearable blood glucose monitors and communicates the information from those monitors directly to the teams of people looking after them, so to the, uh, the doctors and midwives looking after their gestational diabetes. And the main intended benefits are, are, are really those of compliance with monitoring and uh, prompt communication to teams at hospital. And I think the hope is, and some of the indications are that, it, uh, it will reduce the need to um, attend quite so many hospital um, appointments and nurse appointments to, uh, to monitor and care for their gestational diabetes. Okay. So I guess uh, any information on you know, how patients found it or you know, the experience of using this kind of app? Yeah, so um, so the NICE website does cite a few studies into the app. It's it's worth recognising that these normally contain quite low numbers of patients, and they generally have been done for sort of research and development purposes of the meters and the product. Nevertheless, they do show really quite good um, evidence of patient compliance um, and also excellent um, feedback from patients in terms of uh, in terms of their user usability. So what they're finding is that people generally continue to use the device for the uh, duration of their pregnancy um, and that they report that it's easy to use. Also good um, usability feedback from those teams of people receiving and using the data at the hospital. And how did it rack in terms of things like cost and all those lovely bits that the commissioners and stuff may be more interested in? Yeah, so the people, so uh, nice um, site that this was evaluated by um, four NHS trusts, in particular Oxford University Hospitals Foundation Trust, um, and they found that uh, they were uh, calculating a saving of £230 per patient per pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I think the cost of the service worked out at about £370, and they were finding that they were achieving a reduction of 230 So saving costs, not considerable, but I suppose the main benefits would come in terms of compliance and compliance with monitoring and uh, freeing up those staff who would be take, taking readings and um, seeing these patients to deal with the roles. Mm-hmm. And I guess the other side of it is it means the patients aren't having to come to clinics. You know, yeah, there's the cost saving of not being able to not needing to run the clinics, but also for the patients themselves having to take time out of their day to come just to basically have a chat about whether it needs upping down. And I guess that can be done mm. via, you know, I guess some form of telemonitoring, which is basically what yeah. this app is. Yeah, that's true. So the app does have, have a facility to send information back to the patient to give them instructions about their medication usage, Even better. Um, which is which is great. Okay, so it sounds like a, a positive thing. Um, in terms of, I guess, if people were interested in using this for their patients, how viable is that? 
Well, it seems to just be available in certain sensors at okay. the moment and with certain compatible glucose monitors. Uh, if you download the app, you do need a, a specially issued QR code to activate and begin to use the app. So I think it's one of those things that we'd perhaps like to see rolled out more in the future. I would also add that I think it, it perhaps needs a bit more evaluation. It seems like this, is, that this would be beneficial, but those studies that were evaluated were quite small. Um, mm. And so there's the possibility of this study effect where people in small studies in specialist centres uh, often comply more with yeah. treatment in the general population. So I think that needs looking into a bit more, but certainly one to watch. Definitely. Yeah, be interested to see what other um, implantable or mobile monitoring devices are brought to market and mm-hmm. uh, you know what apps evolve for, for those uh, systems to use that data and communicate with the hospital. Really exciting area to look at, I think. Yeah, um, and I think one of the things that I quite like about this particular one is that it can use existing um, appliances and paraphernalia that's already kind of around. I mean, if you compare this, I guess, to one of the newer products on the market, the Libra Healthcare one for mm-hmm. diabetic patients, so the implantable, you know, BM glucose machine, mm-hmm. um, you know, that seems really positive in the way that it may work, but quite expensive when you're talking something like £50 per unit, and each unit can only last up to about two weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, um, whilst it, I think for patient empowerment, it seems like a great tool. Um, it does have this sheer cost evaluation issues. Um, whereas this, it's kind of using what people are already using, just giving them that ability to transmit that data. I mean, it's the basis of tele-healthcare, mm. isn't it, in a sense? Um, and yeah, it sounds like it may be a really positive thing. But it kind of sounds like it's one for the commissioners to take up rather than individual practices and things. I think so. Yeah, excellent. So I guess those were the two most recent nice uh, app evaluations. Um, yeah, how do you? What's your what's your feeling about the uh, nice app evaluations in general? Have you enjoyed looking at those? Yeah, I think they give quite good summaries. I mean, nice as we know is kind of like our national organisation for looking at the evidence behind what we use, and I think that they're very good and detailed in terms of the, their evaluations of these products. Um, I think you know whether we can look at other you know options and stuff. Definitely, um, but you know it's a good place to start. I think, and, and we, you know, both of us, I think, have actually been surprised at the depth of information that they've been able to provide on these, you know, two apps yeah, and stuff. I, yeah, I think I think it's really really rigorous. They they include some considerations of the technology, the the usage and user experience. Um, they do uh, they have find relevant uh, literature and and um, provide uh, references for that literature. And, and do reach some conclusions and recommendations. So I've been really impressed reading these reviews. Okay. So well, now we want to move over to some news updates, if that's all right. So we've had a, a couple of news stories that have come out. Yeah, so so Gandhi, the, the first one is something that, well, I think it's caught all of our attention, but this uh, particularly caught your attention. And yeah. we've had some conversations about it offline and with other people. Mm-hmm. But so, so Gandhi, what's the, the recent story that, that's really captured your uh, attention. Yeah, so I think that the hottest uh, kind of like tech healthcare story for us, particularly in primary care, has been the GP at hand. So this is the app that's been backed up by the Babylon Healthcare Company. Um, pilots are being run in London at the moment, um, and it basically it kind of integrates that whole concept of being able to Skype with your doctor. Really, so use the app. You have to register with the GP at hand practice. Um, so there's an actual practice based in London, which you know is doing this, and then based on that you can you know, input your symptoms and then be able to have an appointment with a GP through the app itself. Even if needs be, they can actually book you in face-to-face, but the predominant nature of this is using um, the app itself, and then you've got your appointment. So, so again, this has been... So that sounds 
very convenient, putting a yep. patient perspective in Hatton. Uh, but this has been quite controversial. So where has the controversy come from with this story? So I think the big controversy about this has been the fact that when you actually look at the exclusions that the company have put behind this, um, that there's quite a few patients that they recommend may not be able to use it. So let's be clear, they don't say that you can't use it. They just suggest that these patients may not benefit from the actual service and should potentially stay with a more regular GP. Mm. And I guess the controversy around that is that a lot of people are seeing this as cherry picking patients. And as a result of those exclusions, they're pretty much seeing the working well. And it's generally speaking, other patients that have the lowest need and lowest in terms of use of the services. And therefore, when it comes to funding, it means that they're able to run a more lucrative service and leave the more complex and challenging patients mm-hmm. for other practices to manage, which actually can significantly impact the amount of services that you can yeah. put on. So I'm just going to I'm going to have to dive a little bit deeper on this one. Okay. okay. So uh, I'm imagining our listeners out there, and some of them are experienced GP partners, but some of them will be trainees. Some of yeah. them might not work in general practice, might not work in medicine, might mm-hmm. even be patients. So just explain what the, the what the danger is here to um, to the to to their kind of ordinary GP practice that they might be quite fond of or, or enjoy using. Yeah. So the worry with this is that the GP practices that are left to to manage these more complex patients are basically seeing those more complex ones having to have more appointments to look after their health needs, having to invest more money and services to look after them, but then not being able to have the balance of the funding to actually you know equate this, and therefore the problem is that pushes more complex care to particular practices. They then find it more difficult, and as a result of that, they're not able to maintain financial sustainability. Potentially, worst case means they have to shut. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it is quite scary, actually. I mean, the way I the way I look at it is, um, as GPs, we get about a hundred and fifty pounds per patient per year varies, to provide yeah. care. It, it, it varies, and that comes from a few different sources. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's for every patient. So that's regardless of whether they're a young, fit twenty-something, or whether they're a uh, becoming slightly more frail, crumbly, mm-hmm. um, elderly person with multiple comorbidities and complex needs, it's the same amount. And the way general practice is able to provide care for everybody is that effectively the pains you get for those patients who um, who have pretty low health needs effectively subsidise um, and provide the funding that the GP needs to go and do multiple home visits yeah. to the frail elderly people. So if all of those young fit people are, are registered with, say, GP at hand and take their £150 per year over to them. Um, you're left with £150 per year you know, without being subsidised by other patients to, mm-hmm. to care for your frailer, more vulnerable patients. Um, and it's not going to be enough money. So no, it's not. The, the fear is that if the, the, fit, the fit well people walk to these online-based services, then the system will not be able to have enough money to care effectively for frail and vulnerable people. And that's that's really worrying. It is worrying. Uh, and, you know, this has become such a big concern that actually this issue went to the LMC conference. So for our listeners that, that, that may not be aware of this, um, every area has what we call local medical committees. Um, the, the closest thing to a union, I guess, that you can mm. describe for, for GPs. Um, and they're all based around local regions. And then every year they have a, an annual meeting to try and decide what the key pertinent issues are for general practice and to give direction to the GPC, our negotiating body, in terms of what should be the contractual issues that they work at to make general practice work better, both for patients and for practices. Uh, and this was such a, a pertinent issue. That this was included as a last minute motion. And it was un- pretty much unanimously voted that you know this needs to be tackled 
um, the highest echelons of the NHS and you know, the primary care and stuff because it is genuinely viewed as, as a worrying shift in the way that um, healthcare is commissioned. But also, you know, this has potential huge impacts for patients. You know, if you don't have access to the correct services, that means you may not get the healthcare that you deserve, really. Um, so, so Gandhi, what's uh, what if anything has been happening as the as the the dust has been settling on this story? So it's quieting down a little bit. I think it's like I said, it's been kicked up to the the commissioners and you know the, the people higher up to discuss about how viable this is. Um, it's still running at the moment. It's still a service that's running up in London. Uh, sorry, down in London. I keep forgetting we're, we're north up here. Um, and as a result of that, you know, I think it's a definitely a watch this space kind of thing. Um, it's only been running for. It's coming up to just about a month, so it's mm. not long. Um, we'll probably see some changes, I imagine. Interestingly, as a principle, you know, accessing your GP on your, your, you know, your smartphone and stuff, I think there is potentially some legs with that. We're seeing an increased use of telehealth care and, and you know, um, t- mm. certain services like teledermatology particularly really lend itself to this kind of model. The question is, can you deliver complex primary care through this model is, is the question. And I think that's the part that we haven't quite been able to bottom out really. And that's the worry I think a lot of you know, experienced GPs and a, a lot of you know areas are having that can you actually deliver the full gamut of primary care mm. through a smartphone? Probably not really. Yeah, and I, I would agree this is a story where the the underlying technology I think certainly has has legs. I think. Mm-hmm. I think in a few years' time, we'll probably all be familiar with using triage apps on our mobile phone and probably communicating with GPs via Skype or video link. But I think it's just the implementation that's that's worried people, uh, yeah. and that not enough thought's been given to how this might destabilise the underlying model of primary care. So uh, certainly, one to watch and see how this develops. Um, and this might segue into uh, nicely into another story that's been in the news. So Babylon have been in the news quite a lot and Gandhi how what's the other story where Babylon have been in the news yeah so so this other story is about the fact that Babylon the parent company of GP to hand um, have been commissioned to do actually this um, pilot although I don't think they're calling it pilot um, I'll, I'll come back to you Andy <laughs> to the full thing but basically yeah. it's not gone the way I think they were hoping and they've had to stop so do you want to explain Andy uh, yeah so, um, so I think it was in the news maybe Six or nine months ago, it was announced that, that Babylon were going to, um, that uh, North West London CCGs, I think it was, were going to pit Babylon Health Symptom Checker app, app uh, Symptom Checker, Checker app, bit of a mouthful, against 111 call handlers uh, mm-hmm. in a trial to see um, if their app can reduce, can provide better use of resources really and reduce inappropriate referrals to A&E and GP services. And they were doing some initial focus group and small scale testing. It's a bit unclear exactly what they were up to but they found that uh, patients were gaming the system Uh, I think those are the words that they used actually so one Mm -hmm. imagines that they were um, perhaps deliberately answering questions in a certain way but they were gaming the system as to achieve quicker access to GP appointments which I think was really really interesting and for me through uh, opened up a whole sort of gamut of questions I was really wondering why why that is so Gandhi how do you feel about this 
Um, well, I, I think it's an interesting prospect. I mean, technology has, I think, huge power for helping in primary care, but I think it has to be respected in terms of the way that it's used. You know, using technology to act as your triage system, potentially, um, can have some really good uses, I think, and it's definitely an area to watch. I mean, we keep hearing how AI will take over healthcare and we won't need your doctor and that kind of stuff. I think we're many many years off from that and I think this is a great example as to why because you can break the system and that's effectively what has happened and you know it's definitely an area to keep an eye on but I think we're well away from that place of it being effective. Yeah so, so I've got a confession to make I guess. In okay. the, when, it's nine months ago when I first heard about this story whilst I'm excited about technology there was a part of me that sort of hoped that this might not go too well. Okay. Just to te- tease that apart, I guess it's part of feeling um, threatened as a professional mm-hmm. and a and as a human being. Yeah, you know, definitely. Feeling that my my role, you know, might be under question and might be able to be done by a you know, by a machine. Um, so part of me sort of hopes that maybe this this might not work or that we weren't ready for it yet. But it failed for the reason I didn't see it coming. I didn't think that patients would deliberately game the system. I thought that. They would have the risk balance in the wrong place, and that's why they wouldn't achieve a reduction in A&E attendances. Or I thought something else would go wrong. So it's really interesting that it didn't work for those reasons. Yeah, um, maybe this unfortunately is a marker of the wider issues in primary care. You know, we know for a fact that general practice is massively under-resourced in order to cope with the demands that are placed upon it. And you know, part of this may be you know a wake-up mm. call to the powers that be that actually. You know, patients are willing to and able to find mm-hmm. loopholes around systems they try and put in to try and prevent these problems from happening. So actually, mm. is that a wider context issue of the, the provision that's being given to them yeah. and the way that it's commissioned? And maybe we shouldn't be too surprised as uh, those GPs listening out there will know that every now and again you, you tweak your appointment system, you make a, you make a change mm-hmm. um, to try and improve access uh, and make better use of the resources you've got. And often things seem to work for a while and then patients adapt because they need to see their GP and they want to see their GP and their practice nurses mm. and they find a way to adapt to the system and, and you normally return to the status quo where yeah. you, you you still don't have enough appointments to, to satisfy the demand. I had a few thoughts as to why this went wrong and mm. I think, number one, I think they're, they're trying to solve the, the wrong problem in a way or they're using a tool which addresses access and makes access easier mm-hmm. for patients you know you've got your phone in your pocket you can use that anytime that you you like to check your symptoms so they're trying to solve an access problem so i think i think they're trying to solve the wrong problem so the problem that they're trying to solve is a capacity problem we all know that there aren't enough gps there are enough practice nurses to meet the demand of patients and patients get frustrated but i think they're using a tool that addresses access to try and solve that demand problem. Mm-hmm. So actually using an app, it makes it more accessible to um, get access to an assessment yeah. and potentially see a GP, but it doesn't change the fact that there aren't enough GPs there. Yeah, so I, think, I think you've got to be careful there, Andy. You're probably going into the basis of the constant general practice argument about access versus capacity <laughs> and the fact that you know they are completely different viewpoints. Mm. Um, I don't think we've got enough time to tease that one. Well, maybe not. But that's anyway, that's, that's one of the thoughts I had. Yeah. Two, I think it's easier to lie to a machine than it is to a person. Definitely. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that our receptionists and the human beings sort of bring to the game really in terms of they... 
um, people feel probably more guilty um, if they're mm-hmm. uh, not being truthful with a real person. And I think that's actually an asset that we perhaps underestimated here. And three, I'd like to see a more collaborative approach and perhaps more collaborative language from some of these AI companies mm-hmm. and perhaps the industry. There's a lot of talk about replacing people's jobs, yep. um, you know, replacing people and you don't need a doctor to do this, you don't need a nurse to do that. And I think actually a lot of the research coming out of the AI field is that humans are better at some things, apps and AI and technology is better at other things, but actually the best uh, results are achieved where those two things work together. Definitely. So um, if you look at the field of chess, um, computers are better at playing chess than humans and now they'll mm. always be humans playing chess. Uh, but what's the most effective combination? It's actually humans and computers working together and there'll be a, a computer working on its own or a team of computers and there'll be a team of humans working on chess problems. So it's interesting. So I think we need to maybe join forces with technology, get some people back in the loop to work mm. with the technology and maybe that's how we'll achieve better outcomes. I think you'll be a watch and wait as usual. Absolutely. Cool. What's, what's, what's next, Gandhi? So what's next? Well, actually, this is the segment where we would normally interview somebody and today that somebody is actually our esteemed Andy Foster. That's true. Not sure about esteemed, but I am present and willing to be interviewed. So yeah, so so here I am, Gandhi. Um, fire away. So Andy, um, I, I know a lot of your history. I mean, we've been working together for coming up nearly five, six years mm. now. But why, why don't you tell us about you know? Uh, I know you mentioned you're a GP in Nottingham, but a little bit more around that. I mean, what particular roles have you enjoyed the most? Yeah, sure. So, um, so yeah, so I'm a GP partner. In Nottingham, working um, what I suppose you dis- describe as a fairly deprived area up in North Nottingham, uh, and I've been a partner there for um, just coming up to seven years now. So that's quite a while, mm-hmm. I guess. As I mentioned in my other interview, my areas of interest tend to be in uh, GPs working together at scale. Mm-hmm. Very interested in what we can achieve together, and that we can possibly achieve uh, more together. Than we can achieve alone and that's led uh, to me being involved with Nottingham City General Practice Alliance which uh, mm-hmm. is a federation of 47 local practices covering a population of 330,000 patients so that's um, something that takes um, a fair bit of my time these days also always have an interest in technology um, ever for, from my school days like yourself I enjoy playing computer games every now and again the yep. occasional board game as well so more recently I've been trying to bring that uh, sort of love and interest of technology into general practice and say trying to do some things with technology in my own practice and also bringing that into my work at the federation the final thing i well not final but another thing uh, that i'm involved with is the local rcgp faculty mm-hmm. uh, really enjoy being involved with them since uh, my return to nottingham uh, seven yeah. years ago after vts in ball in uh, in birmingham and you know, that's been a lot of fun as well. Um, enjoy being involved and then uh, becoming involved in the organisation of the faculty and uh, bringing in some of the technology interests to that as well. And that's actually how we met. Um, our, our first time that we came across each other was at one of the faculty-run events. Tell yeah. us a little bit more how you got involved with the faculty. So, as I alluded to, uh, I went to Nottingham Medical School. Uh, and then did some house jobs around Nottingham and Lincolnshire uh, and then thought I need to go somewhere else I must broaden my horizons so okay. I went all the way to Birmingham so not really that far no, at all not really uh, but it was a different city and did my VTS in Birmingham and had a great time and you know made some new friends there but felt 
No, I think my life is more Nottingham based. Um, so I decided to come back to Nottingham in 2010 and found that whilst I had uh, lots of connections in Nottingham, most of them weren't in general practice. Okay. A lot of my colleagues from medical school were doing other specialities. So I thought, I need to get, I need to get connected. Okay. So um, I saw some adverts for uh, what was then called the Nottingham UGP group. I think they were only just beginning to adopt this first five brand to yeah. these sorts of groups. Um, and got involved with them and then got involved in organising some events. Uh, and that's led to being invited to a faculty board meeting, mm-hmm. as often happens to most people. It's a common way yep. to faculties, get a tap on the shoulder, come to a meeting. And really enjoyed meeting really interesting GPs, interesting switched on positive GPs and uh, GPs from all sorts of different uh, roles uh, across uh, across the patch uh, in education roles in partnership roles all sorts of different things and I suppose that's where it began okay so we heard about how you got involved yeah. with the faculty but what are you doing with the faculty at the moment then okay so currently I'm the onsec at the Vale Trent faculty uh, which is uh, quite an exciting position actually and one of the main responsibilities I seem to have inherited somehow is running the annual um, AIT Leavers event. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think these events happen up and down the country and it's an opportunity to prepare AITs uh, in their SD3 year and uh, first five GPs as well uh, for life after work. Um, so I've been leading that event for the last two years and it's been a great opportunity to bring in some of my other interests for that. Sometimes you just need a platform to indulge other things that you've always wanted to do yeah or that you like and Gandhi's nodding here as well so uh, I've so we've we've played with the format and um, introduced a few innovations definitely um, there um, and these are innovations that actually have been nominated for awards um, yeah so we yet yeah, we were nominated for a, a faculty innovation award this mm-hmm. year uh, missed out to um, to Jamie Hines uh, and his uh, from uh, the Midlands faculty uh, and their described GP in 150 words mm-hmm. um, exercise, uh, which is actually fantastic. Real, real fan of that project. Uh, but what we did was we tried to uh, get the most out of the AIT Leavers event. And mm-hmm. um, uh, last year we introduced a book called GP Speed Jobs Dating, yeah. uh, which was um, the IT event is. Is great because there's roughly 70 plus young GPs who don't currently have jobs mm-hmm. in one place and we, we we recognize this and we thought we've got all these people in one place and on the other hand um, other faculty stakeholders are the partners of the practices who are really crying out for for young GPs to recruit uh, to get on their Rolodex to use as locums or to recruit into salaried or even partnership roles and we thought, how can we how can we serve these two uh, communities and it seems obvious with hindsight doesn't it but we thought let's connect them and get them together and then we thought what's the best format to do that well okay speed dating has perhaps been overtaken by dating apps and websites yep. but it's still got some presence in popular culture and we thought, okay let's um, let's use a speed dating format that's probably the best way to maximize the number of contacts um, when you get all those people in the same room so that was a very interesting innovation. It was. I mean, obviously, we worked together on that kind of project, and mm. you know, um, one of the things I found most rewarding about it was the fact that you know we we achieved local retention of GPs, which is something that's hard. Let's face it, you know, getting GPs to stick around is not easy enough. Mm. But then we know that from last year's event and this year's event, we've actually had practices come back to us saying we've actually found staff from this event and you know we've been able to keep local GPs I think there's real value in that you know um, yeah, what more can be said really on that particular topic yeah but that wasn't the only innovation we've been doing 
Yes, that's true. So this year we thought we need to wring the maximum amount of value from this event mm-hmm. that we can. So we sort of threw everything in the kitchen sink at it, really. So <laughs> we thought, okay, let's. We've got these. We've got the AITs there. We've got the practices there. Uh, we've got uh, some experienced speakers there in the information. Uh, and in fact, wouldn't it be great if if more people could potentially be involved? Uh, you know, people who could you know, AITs or first fives who couldn't be there. So what we did was we um, used some of the video and website expertise within the faculty team and we uh, got some cheap mobile phones and tripods mm-hmm. and microphones and we uh, recorded uh, many of the talks that were given on the day uh, we produced uh, a, a, f- a website using free tools mm-hmm. and hosted those videos afterwards so that people could uh, relive the day or those that couldn't be there could um, experience the the knowledge within the talks yep. um, Gandhi, tell us about the 360-degree camera. Yeah, so I think that was the other innovation we took. So we wanted to give it the most immersive experience possible, and we are at the dawn of 360 video technology really ballooning. And, you know, we thought, why not go for it? So we actually videoed most of the, the, the main talks, the plenary talk, you know, the talks about revalidation and appraisal, you know, a key um, discussion topic for many GPs, not just the newly qualified. And we basically filmed it in 360 so that when you watch it it's as close to being there as actually being there as you can actually get and uh, I think it is something that we really found useful yeah. We the feedback we got from people that then were able to watch it online was that actually this is quite cool yeah. but at the same time it's got value in terms of the information it's giving so I think it's a good opportunity to uh, to plug the website that we set up for that so uh, the website is www.valeoftrent.org.uk and that's where you can still see a blog post about the story of the day how mm. we film things what equipment we used how much equipment that cost and also see videos of the the talks and the 360 degree videos we talked about oh and the final thing to mention is having all these people in one place and the cameras we thought uh, we'll try and create a uh, promotional video for the Vale of Trent area as well mm-hmm. So we we got a number of people doing pieces to camera and edited that together uh, in what's quite a quite a nice uh, video about about why be a GP why be a GP in the Vale of Trent area uh, and that's also available to watch at www.valeoftrent.org.uk. And if we're speaking about websites, it may be worth talking about one of the ones that you run yourself. Um, you've been running a blog, I believe. Oh right. Oh yes, that's interesting. So yes, I've been running a blog since last summer so why did you start it off okay well it all started when i went to a leadership course in 2015 uh, run by east midlands leadership academy we might be able to put their website in the, the footnotes i guess because okay. um, they'd run some good courses and they can be free if you remember local lmc here in the east midlands and uh, part of that course was uh, connecting yourself with who you were before medical school and kind of uh, you know what what were your interests before this happens to many of us, interests get sidelined as you go through medical training. And uh, so I remember being quite interested actually in, in art and quite enjoying sketching as a mm-hmm. youngster. Interested in computer games, technology, computer programming to some extent, and also in business in a way. I remember selling revision sheets in the schoolyard and things like that, sort of enterprising young lad. Um, and actually a lot of these things lend themselves quite well to general practice anyway, and maybe yeah. the reasons why I ended up where I was within medicine. Also, I enjoy reading blogs tended to like technology blogs, also interested in personal productivity, interested in some random things, don't we? Yep. And I thought, having got having that experience on the course, I thought, I think I want to start a blog. I think that would be a great way to um, indulge some of these things from my past, make them relevant for what I'm doing now as a GP, um, 
what I create may be of interest, maybe of relevance to other people. And I thought the whole thing would just be fun and be a nice sort of hobby and uh, in some ways a distraction from the, the day job was being something productive to do. So that's that's how I got into it. Um, and it's had a good response. I'm going to give you the, the, the address now. So Go for it. www.avoidingpuddles.com. So uh, Dr. Foster, there's a nursery rhyme that involved puddles. That's where that uh, came from, if anybody thought that sounded like a strange url that's comes from the nursery yeah line. and I, I guess as um, a fellow blogger i mean i've always been a big fan of the work that you've done with that particular blog um i have to admit one of my favorite articles is still the one that focuses on pokemon go oh right yeah um, so it's a while back and, and for, for our listeners they may remember you know pokemon go when it ballooned out onto the network this is the you know using geolocation to try and find things and, and you know the, the the method that can interact with getting you active and yeah. that kind of stuff and the gamification side of how that works and i remember you talked about how potentially we could use gamification in primary care to improve you know activity to improve engagement with you know chronic disease management and that kind of stuff and i found that a really interesting take yeah. on, on how it can be used oh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that article Gandhi uh, it's good there's almost a, a whole um, section segment podcast um, on on all of the implications uh, you know of augmented reality location aware apps gamification uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's lots of potential I think um, yeah, interesting yeah maybe something good. for us to cover on a later session I think so Cool. And then your final thing that um, I know has been very close to your heart is you work with the um, Alliance and stuff, um, and particularly the past couple of years. I know you've been heavily invested in it. Um, how did you get involved with it, and what are you currently doing? Yeah, so uh, Nottingham City General Practice Alliance is uh, is, is really our, our local GP federation here in Nottingham City. It was incorporated, so there's many ways that you can structure these things. It's structured as a limited liability company owned entirely by the GP practices that form its membership. They are the uh, the only shareholders. And really the, the idea behind forming the company was, um, it came from this, um, it came, I think, from a place of fear and from mm-hmm. a place of optimism, if I'm being honest. A few years back, there was a lot of talk of private industry moving into primary care. It seems to have died away a little bit now or to some extent um, but people were really scared that um, that the private sector was going to move in and take over mm-hmm. um, so I think part of the reason that the three people together was was a defensive one in a way and I remember talking about uh, ringing the wagons and things like that uh, which is interesting you know if you imagine uh, cowboys with their wagons kind of pulled together uh, and the Indians attacking them um, I remember we, we, we had a picture of that when we were pitching actually which was interesting okay. um, but it also comes to a place of um, Ambition as well, I think, sure. uh, because GP practices are notoriously well, not notoriously, but they are they have been traditionally um, small organizations. And uh, in a world where medical care is becoming much more complicated, uh, you can only achieve so much as a small organization before you need to start to have people who are subspecialized uh, mm-hmm. before. Um, those benefits you can get from just operating at scale in terms of. Uh, buying power, having dedicated a team, teams of people um, focused on certain activities. Um, so there's there's lots of opportunities for general practice uh, working at scale. So I think it I think it really came from those two places. Um, uh, practically, I the 
the uh, the CCG kindly actually facilitated the, the very beginning of this by organising some meetings of interested GPs. And I know Gandhi was involved in the setup process mm-hmm. quite closely as well. Um, and of those GPs involved, a group including Gandhi uh, went on to um, develop the concept, sell that concept to the 47 practices who eventually became members. Uh, and ultimately we were incorporated and then... Um, uh, a, a board of directors was elected, and I was fortunate enough to be one of those elected. And that's that's how I got there. So that's how it was formed and things. And I know that it's had a, a few interesting challenges to come its way. And I mean, I think probably the less we talk about the PCPO, the better. Yes, uh, don't mention those those words. Yes. Yeah, but let's talk about I guess the, the future. There's particularly a couple of projects I know you've been working mm. on that sound really interesting and, and potentially from uh, our, our listeners' viewpoints, um, you know, not just locally but nationally, quite um, useful. So let's hear about those. Yeah. So um, I guess the, the first thing I'll talk about is something that I've been quite closely involved in, and mm. it's been quite interesting uh, for me as a personal journey. Um, so I'm sure everybody's heard of active reception signposting, one of the top. Uh, top 10 impactful things uh, you can uh, that practices and GPs can focus on to improve their productivity features in as uh, recommended by NHS England in its 10 point plan for that's right improving healthcare and that's what I was trying to allude to uh, it's also part of the GP forward view and um, health education England have provided uh, guidelines mm-hmm. for those people who want to train their receptionists so uh, so this was this, so this is something that has become a a national strategic priority, uh, also something that many practices have been doing for a long time. I suppose at its heart, it's about um, receptionists understanding the patient need and mm-hmm. why they're contacting the practice and where relevant and for appropriate patients, um, making sure that they understand their options in terms of other services they can use that might be uh, quicker and uh, provide a more direct route to, um, to treating their symptoms than the GP appointment that they may have felt they needed. Okay. Um, so, what happened next? Uh, well, we knew that there was a need to provide this training in, in Nottingham, and in fact, the funding was available that can only be spent on this. So it was going to happen. Okay. So it was something that was going to happen anyway. So um, at the Federation, we decided that that we would like to develop um, the training and the things that were necessary to support that training. Um, so how is this how is this different to reception based triage, which is obviously a more tricky area to co- go into? Yeah. So the important thing about this is is getting it right, mm-hmm. doing it safely, and and actually um, having something that you're able to deliver and train all receptionists to do. Okay. Um, and uh, so reception triage. So triage is quite a a technical wins quite a technical activity um, mm-hmm. so there are triage systems that, yep. that are used like the Manchester triage system uh, which are quite complicated to do and involve following um, an algorithm and serial you know serial questions following an algorithm um, and they can be time-consuming um, and they can result in some defensive uh, outcomes in yep. terms of uh, managing risk in a defensive way so uh, reception side pacing is completely different um, it's really about solving that informational problem so the problem that is being addressed is that that in response to uh, demand often outstripping supply mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, access to healthcare, uh, commissioners have commissioned many community-based services which patients can often access directly 
for example, um, in Nottingham, uh, patients can access physio services directly and IAPTS, you know, counselling services, uh, without the need to uh, see their GP or contact their GP's surgery. But patients mm. don't always know about this. In fact, mm. patients often do not know about this. Uh, and there are many appointments that I've had where patients come in, I talked about their problem and all I do is hand them a piece of paper with a telephone number on. Um, so there were resources being wasted and, and also patients' time not being used effectively as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so active signposting is about um, using that first point of contact with the practice, which is often when they speak to the GP receptionist at the desk on the telephone. Of course, some patients book uh, appointments online, but, but they're, they're still in the minority. And at that point, point when they call, the receptionist sensitively asking what the problem is, um, mm-hmm. making an understanding of that problem within the context of what they know about the patient mm-hmm. and where appropriate, providing them with information about where they might find out about how to look after themselves, information about what services might be relevant for them, uh, but very much allowing that patient to choose and not acting as a barrier to GP appointments, but um, acting and providing information about services. Uh, And we are finding that that patients um, are choosing, you know, alternatives uh, and it is having an impact uh, on on, uh, service usage, which is good. Cool. I mean, it definitely has that value, I think, in comparison to, like you said, reception-based triage, which mm. I've come across in certain practices when I used to locum. I've always found it a little bit um, uncomfortable, I think, with, with that prospect because, you know, trying mm. to act as a block when you're not clinically trained. I mean, I mean that, that's where yeah. potentially one of these root problems with 111 and, and maybe even, you know, the Babylon system come mm. into play is trying to not use that um, clinical inference and reasoning process when you're trying to, you know... Yeah. handle the flow of where a patient goes and things so it sounds really interesting mm-hmm. i have to admit and, and i know in our practice it's been you know really well received i think the, the staff in particular got really behind this kind of idea of being able to help the patients and, and yeah. signpost them to the correct thing but at the same time not feeling the pressure of saying actually you know you can't use this particular option because you should be using this you know i think that's one of the key messages that they've had with this as well yeah that's, that's, that's very nice to hear gandhi uh, another thing I, I would add which is just interesting as to how we went about this because we took quite a um entrepreneurial approach to it i guess so i was quite impressed with the team at ncgpa because we one of the uh, one of the interesting things um about doing this with ncgpa was that we wanted to do something quickly mm-hmm. and we wanted to make efficient use of resources uh, so it was really interesting to be speaking in terms of getting a minimum viable product up quickly mm-hmm. um, you know mvp um and we were also quite efficient in terms of how we generate the artwork so a lot of it is cannibalized from my blog and repurposed okay. uh, which people will be able to see if they look at both of those websites um so it was, it was it was really refreshing to move at a fair pace and with a fair amount sure. of freedom uh, which you don't always feel when you're trying to be innovative in in other nhs structures so that was really interesting and so that's one of the things i've really enjoyed about uh, federation work well, I think we're going to he- finish off at that point. Um, so we'd like to thank all of you for listening to us. Um, we would like to invite you to comment. So um, we're actually going to be posting this on a system called SoundCloud. Um, from that, you'll be able to you know, log on, listen, hopefully. Uh, and as well as that, make any comments um, and feedback. Um, we'd love to hear your questions, you know, queries, that kind of stuff. And also things you may think be worth us covering. Um, yeah. Uh, in addition to that, we're hoping, as we said, to have some further people that we can interview. Um, prospectively, we've got uh, Dr. Kenny Livingston joining us next month. Um, he's 
he's the current creator and owner of a, an app called ZoomDoc. Completely different to Babylon's GP at hand, I might point out. Um, but it, it provides a really interesting um, take on using technology to access a GP service. So definitely worth, I think, tuning in for next week. Yeah, fantastic. And I would add, I don't think we'll go too long without Gandhi escaping being interviewed as well. So we'll turn the mic on Gandhi in one of the upcoming We'll see if podcasts. we can avoid that for as long as possible. Uh, but uh, up until then, um, thank you for listening. Uh, I'm saying Gandhi. Yeah, and thank Thanks for listening. I'm uh, Andy Foster. See you later. Bye. Bye.